little song about a man called Goff and a little boy who wanted to be tied with the same brush. He learned Latin, held his head up high, and he hated the liberals. Welcome to Pot on the Hill, Australia's only weekly Labor podcast where we discuss the political issues, events, people, and campaign activities from home and abroad. I'm Claire Burns, and I'm Victorian Labor's Assistant Secretary. Today's episode of Pod on the Hill is brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers, Australia's leading social justice law firm, championing the rights of everyday Australians since 1919. To find out more, visit morrisblackburn.com.au. Remember, Pod on the Hill is available every week on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher or your favourite podcast app. And if you have any questions to ask of us, email us at podcast at vic.alp.org.au. It is too late, though, to suggest questions for Claire O'Neill, member for the federal seat of Hotham and shadow minister for innovation, technology and the future of work, because happily for us and all of you, Claire is our very special guest today. Claire O'Neill, welcome to Pot on the Hill. Thank you so much, Claire, and it's just lovely to be here. It's really wonderful to have you. We appreciate you coming in and being on the show today. Claire, you have a really impressive education and work resume. You studied your undergrad at Monash University. Your postgrad studies were at Harvard University in the States. You were a Fulbright Scholar, a Dean Scholar. You interned on the New York Stock Exchange. You worked at the Office of the Commonwealth Treasurer and at McKinsey. Um, You were elected to council at age 22 and were made mayor at age 23. And now you're a Member of Parliament and a Shadow Minister which is just all incredibly impressive and I think you're probably one of the smartest people I've ever had the good pleasure to know. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's very true actually Um, and I feel like what have I done with my life reading that out? (laughs) Um, But what I would love to know is the origin story, the labour origin story of Mm. Claire O'Neill. What shaped you and your values and spurred you on to use your brains and your talent as a force within the Labour Party because you joined at age 16? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, well, I think the first thing is I grew up in a dyed-in-the-wool Labor household. Right. Like I can remember finding out that there were people I knew who didn't vote Labor when I was in my teens and being just shocked. Like, what? <laughs> How could you do that? Um, so my parents were both book publishers and um, we lived in a household where I didn't realise this at the time, but we talked about politics and political issues a lot around the dinner table. And we talked a lot about Australia too, which I think now I realise is quite odd. But the sort of um, we sort of talked about, you know, should Australia be a republic? What should our flag look like? Like these sort of real fundamental questions about identity and who we were as a country, a lot about Indigenous Australians and how we are going to interweave those stories. Um, so... We never would, you know, in my household, politics wasn't something that you sneered at and politicians weren't idiots that were stuffing up the country. It was like a really important thing that people were doing trying to shape who we were as a nation. So um, the other thing that was always there for me when I was a kid was about giving to others and I really have never contemplated doing anything with my life other than trying to use what I've been given to give back to others and to create better opportunities for other people. Um, So when I was a teenager, I was very um, passionate about politics and I can really connect back to just white hot feelings of anger about injustices that I saw around me. One of the ones that was really motivating for me was about our education system. Our education system should have as its fundamental goal 
equalising chances between Australian children. So when I was 16, I thought, you know, what can I do about this? And so I went and joined the Labor Party. And was that during the Howard years? It would have been um, 1996, so yeah, we Just would have had an election that year. Yeah, but it was really Kennet that loomed larger in my sure. mind. It was mm. a big time um, during those years of shutting schools, shutting hospitals, you know, cutting back on health education, like really fundamental things that were important to people that I cared about. So um, I think, you know, if there was any politicians I can remember back in those days that really pushed me into politics, it was probably more that Victorian context. And in speaking of that Victorian context, uh, Simon Crean Mm. was your predecessor as the member for Hotham and the leader of the Federal Labor Party from Mm. 2001 to 2003. So you're on the record discussing Simon as having been a mentor to you. Most people aren't so lucky that they just stumble upon a really good mentor. How did that relationship with Simon as your as somebody who you shadowed and, and learnt from mm. come about? Um, well, Simon was the first politician that I met when I joined the Labor Party. And I have to say, when I joined the Labor Party, it never occurred to me that I would ever be anything in the Labor Party. I I never joined the Labor Party to think I was going to build a career in politics. I'd never met a politician before and I didn't even imagine that you could even do something like that. So to meet people who were politicians, I was like, this is amazing, you know, to be, you know, one of the first things I did, I did a little um, pamphlet with Simon, you know, you get the young Labor kids to be in your election materials. So I did that for Simon and, um, you know, he was just so generous and so lovely and that was, I guess I was 16 or 17 at the time. Um, And then Simon helped me when I ran for local council and I just thought that was such a cool thing. You know, I was 22 years old. I didn't Mm -hmm. know him that well, but he was willing to back me in and talk to me, um, talk about me with community leaders and that sort of thing. So when I got elected to parliament, I really hunted Simon down, even though he thought his political career was over. It wasn't really (laughs) because he remains um, very connected to me. And, you know, I think those mentoring relationships are very important in politics because there's so much I don't know that people have lived and why not, you know, try to get that um, those sort of lessons from them. I, I really think those relationships are really the responsibility of the junior person. So for me, you know, Simon can't avoid me. I catch up with him, right. you know, every six months or so for a good yeah. long discussion and mm. talk about, you know, some of the war stories and understand his life and his um, life in politics and he gives me, you know, really brilliant advice. So you feel like it is incumbent upon the person needing the, the, the person needing that mentorship to go and seek it out yeah. and pursue the person that they want as their mentor for their time and, and knowledge. Yeah, I do really feel that. And, you know, because that person's kind of doing you a bit of a favour. So mm. I, I do think like you need to, you need to, you know, Simon didn't agree to be my mentor. I just made him catch up with me heaps and then told him he was my mentor. <laughs> it is, well, it is yeah. one of those kinds of relationships that uh, often when you have mentoring programs or there are things set up, to facilitate that it can be a little awkward and artificial because it's not a dynamic that you can construct from nothing it does have to be I think there has to be a natural component of it Mm, definitely Um, but avenues perhaps to facilitate people finding who their best fit is Mm. and allowing for a relationship to build up around yeah exactly Mm. I've been really lucky in my life in the Labor Party like Jenny Macklin's another one um, another person who's been really generous and really good to me with her 
um, sharing, you know, what she's learned in her incredibly amazing career in the in the party. I really try to pay that forward. Like I spend a lot of time with young women in particular in the party because, mm. you know, advice that you need in the Labor Party is very practical. It's like very, you know, very practical. This mm. is a party of people, of activists trying to do something really incredible and noble and you just need, like there's not that many people really that can give you advice unless, you know, you take from someone who's actually lived it. So I reckon probably once a week I've got a, a young woman coming in and out of my office and sometimes I, you know, just talk to them once and it's and, and that's enough and then other ones I've sort of remained a little bit more in my orbit and I try to help them wherever I can. But I think definitely, you know, if you're that young person looking for a mentor, you need to find the right person and you need to be the one that gives the energy and drive to the relationship. Mm. You spoke earlier about the fact that both of your parents were book publishers, mm. which is not a common profession. No. I don't know that I've actually ever met anybody who's a book publisher. Yeah. How did they end up meeting? Um, just through publishing. Um, and you're right, it's not the most common of professions. In fact, when my dad started out in publishing, there really wasn't an Australian publishing industry. And he used to tell this story about he worked in Angus and Robertson as a bookseller when he was a young man. And he tells this story of how a woman came into the shop and she um, was looking around for a book and he helped her find something she liked. And he said as he was ringing up the sale, and the best thing about this one is it was published in Australia. And she looked at him and said, well, in that case, I don't want it anymore. <laughs> and, like, it's probably hard for us to imagine that, but it was really like the cultural cringe like that existed. Shame. Yeah, exactly. Right. It, it was a time in Australia's history where we didn't have a foundation of who we were as people and he really decided at that moment that, you know, that wasn't good enough. And so he started his own company and he published about a thousand books in his life. And I think we worked out afterwards that something like half of them actually had the word Australia in the title. Like it was Australian plants, animals, history, lots of Labor Party, like he published Arthur Corwell's biography, lots of, you know, really classic histories, Australian Aussie rules, you know, published all those sorts of things. Um, and then my mum did... Um, you know, the Age Good Food Guide and she oh, wow. yeah, she created mm. all the good food guides around Australia. She published all Gab Gabrielle Gatte's books. Ah, <laughs> my, you do Gabrielle you know my Gatte. mum loved Gabrielle Gatte oh, and one day my grandma got to meet him, I can't remember why, <laughs> and got him to sign a, a paper doily that she then had framed for my mum, which mum hung up in the kitchen oh, and so sat cute. there over the uh, presiding over her cooking dinner every night for, you know, however however long it stayed there. But, yes, I do remember Gabrielle Yeah, Gatte. yeah, I've just started to follow Gabrielle on Instagram and it's just Is he still around? French grapes. I just love it so much. So anyway, so mum did, she did lots of books for Australian women, like really about how to be independent, how to manage your health, how to manage your money, that sort of thing. So yeah, so they both had these really, you know, both from not, um, you know, my parents grew up in real um, difficult circumstances, each in their own way, but were able to, you know, make an amazing career in publishing and, you know, my household in, as a child was um, books, just books everywhere on every surface, like thousands and thousands and thousands of books. And that's really been, yeah, a sort of foundation for me, reading and books. And do you think that's also partly why you are passionate about the education system? You mentioned before that our education system is weighted towards funneling resources into the older years, whereas really research shows it needs to be funneled into preschool mm. and an early primary education. Mm. And a lot of that stems around developing early literacy skills, pre-reading skills, 
and sometimes that really does relate to being exposed to literature and mm. and um, opportunities to develop good oral language skills. Are they thing? Do you think that having those opportunities yourself mm. sparked some of that passion that you now have? Oh yeah, absolutely. And you're so right that that education conversation. You know, when I was when I was um, a young person at school, you know, the conversation about education was very much skewed to secondary schools and who's got the most resources. And that's a really important question. But um, I think in that sort of 20, 30 years, as the conversation started to really progress, you know, we have known for a few decades now that we have a one-off opportunity to change a child's life in those first years of their lives. Yet still, the conversation about education in Canberra and in in Spring Street a lot of the time is about the school system. So you're absolutely right. Um, Even though we can see, you know, the school system, the kids who are four and five, they start their first day of prep with a big gap between advantaged and disadvantaged kids that grows through the school system so can you believe that like that is such a problem for us to solve but the keys to that probably are a great deal in what happens before that first day of school so it's a really interesting question like we can solve that through early learning and for sure one of the biggest opportunities for Australia to improve both um, our level of equality, our productivity and the life chances we give to our youngest Australians is to invest and make sure that every kid has got access to quality learning for three and four-year-olds. But what you're saying is right. Like there's really good studies from around the world that show that even before that, even in the first year of life, even, you know, pre, you know, in the womb, kids are actually getting quite a different experience up until they start school. And so for labour people, you know, it's quite a complicated question. Like we don't want to reach into people's homes and control how they engage with their children. But we also know that like there's an American study that shows that an advantaged child has heard a million, 30 million more words. Yeah. By the time they're four, I think it is, or three. So that is bloody, you know, that is a really big social policy problem that we need to solve and yeah there's lots of interesting studies around the world about giving books to disadvantaged families and stuff like that like there are things that we can do but we need to focus the conversation I think much more there than as um, we discussed the mainstream education Mm -hmm. system and how you can intersect at those points where outside of the home where you can meet parents like at the hospital with the newborn or at the maternal and child health care center and be supporting families to understand because oftentimes too a lot of the things that nurture and encourage pre-literacy skills and good oral language which Mm. is a a precursor you know your your competency in oral language is a precursor to your competency in reading at primary Mm. school and a lot of the ways that you can nurture those things aren't necessarily natural to people who haven't been exposed to spending time with kids and a lot of people who have kids haven't spent much time with other people's kids Mm. before that so how do we look at encouraging and and teaching people some of the things that you can do. Yeah, absolutely. I mm. totally agree with that. Mm. I think something else that's quite interesting is that um, there have been some studies that have looked at where do mums get their information. I'm just saying mums, I mean dads as well, but mums are playing a pivotal role yeah. in those first sort of year of life. Where are mums getting their information about parenting and mothering? And um, some of the studies suggest that for really educated mums, they're going to their paediatrician, they're going to doctors, they're going to even to look at um, studies. But um, for mums that aren't as well educated, they're getting information from their friends and family. So how do we make sure that the information that those women are getting is current and accurate? And I think like there's a big thing about technology here and about social media. Like when you... um, 
have your own kids, you get exposed to the world of mums groups on yes. Facebook, <laughs> which is so good. But that is where mums are going for their moral support. So they're mm. actually already networked in and talking about these things online. So there's real ways for um, for governments and the medical system to make sure that we are actually getting good information to the people who need it. Mm. Speaking of reading, I, I grew up reading a lot of Australian literature, modern and classic. Uh, I particularly love books like Seven Little Australians oh, and, so <laughs> and anything by Tim Winton or Robin Klein, um, Morris Gleitzman I love too. Um, I particularly remember as well The Tomorrow When the War Begins oh, by yeah, John yeah, Martin. Yeah, 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 and I think sure. for me that really impacted the way my 11-year-old brain conceptualised mm. Australia and our, advan- you know, our incredible advantage and, uh, you know, the, the real privilege of living here, but also our place in the region and in the world. Mm. Given that you grew up around so many books and had a father who published Australian mm. <laughs> books exclusively, what ones do you feel um, really kind of tapped into and informed your understanding of our country and its national psyche? Mm. I think of... Um have you read Eucalyptus? Murray Bale no, is the no. author. Oh, that's a cracker. Mm. That's an absolute cracker. Just, you know, so lyrical and beautiful, really about the Australian landscape and it's allegorical, like amazing, really, really beautiful book. I just so, write it down. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's a good one. I think there's a there's an amazing tradition of kind of melancholic suburban tales like you know, you mentioned Tim Winton. Mm. The um the other one that's on my mind is um Boy Swallows Universe, Trent Dalton. That's on reserve at the okay, library. Well, I'm I've not got tell I think you. I'm like eleventh <laughs> on the list or something. Yeah, <laughs> I think that that book has really just launched out into a new sort of frontier for that genre of Australian literature. So I think those ones are beautiful. I mean, you mentioned a couple of like Seven Little Australians, all those classics. I was just so into that as a kid. Um, Did you read Jasper Jones? Oh, yeah, beautiful book. Oh, yeah, that what one a really beautiful book. And I yeah. think MTC put it on as a mm. play a couple of years ago, which I, I didn't end up getting to see. But mm. that was, I think that's going to be one that gets passed down yeah. generation to generation. Oh, I think so. Yeah, that's a real classic in the making, isn't it? And I think mm. I think the Trent Dalton book is a good one too. Mm. We were just talking before about the Jimmy Barnes biographies, which yes. I'm, I'm avoiding politics at the moment a little bit, just giving my mind a little bit of a rest. I think that's and fair. Um, <laughs> so I'm reading um, Jimmy Barnes's biography. And that is just a classic Australian tale, like absolutely rollicking story and also captures such a moment in Australian rock history. You know, that pub rock, we were just the peak of the world in pub rock protest anthems, like everything amazing about Cold Chisel and that era. So that's a good one too. I remember talking to my mum after I read that book because the thing that I like about it is that it's very, um, it's a great summer read or post-election read because it's very evocative, but it's plainly written, mm. nice and easy, easily digestible, um, but paints a beautiful mental image as well. And I remember asking my mum about the Sunbury Music Festival, which obviously doesn't exist anymore, but was quite massive oh, yeah. at the time. And I'm not sure if you're up to the bit in the book where he goes off and goes to Sunbury, but mum was like, it was massive. It yeah. was this huge festival that everyone knew about and was, you know, super, and, and it was out in Sunbury. And it was, I had no idea before I read the book Isn't about that this. absolutely amazing? Yeah, I think there must be something about the way the live music scene worked at the time. Like, 
big pubs, the way they ran the ticketing, that just generated this amazing era of Australian rock and roll that I don't know will ever be repeated. I mean, can you imagine, like, he just talks about, you know, they're doing gigs with ACDC, Sherman are playing, like, it is just the coolest. So, yeah, yeah. that's a good one. <laughs> and I think the, te- you know, technology now, we have a host, a swag of fantastic Australian artists, but because technology allows smaller artists to gather an audience mm. and for people to go out and find the niche and what they like there's not that super group type mm. phenomenon anymore where mm. you have the, the massive bands that have the massive following and um and and sort of sit in our uh for at the forefront of our mind as being iconically australian in in, in the modern time i don't think anyway mm. but i'm happy yeah. to, if there's any listeners out there who want to write in and correct yeah me. <laughs> i'd love to hear from any people of a younger generation because i don't want to be saying that rock and roll ain't what it used to be you know that feels like too much of a cliche but yeah <laughs> do you feel like a special time <laughs> um now i'm interested in talking about the time you spent working in east arnhem in yeah. the northern territory in 2010 what took you up there and what then what brought you back down to Melbourne? I went up there because I became very conscious that I was living in a country where we had this huge and we have this huge life expectancy gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians and I just didn't understand what was happening and why that was the case and why we seemed to be trying different things to fix the problems and it didn't seem to be working. So it was really just like as a matter of being an Australian, we should understand this problem. It's our our thing that we're going to have to resolve together. And so I really wanted to go up there. There was never any sense that, you know, my my partner and I were going to be able to solve anything or anything like that. It was really just to try to see is there something we can do to help at all, but also what can we learn from this about how we're going to find the clues to unlocking this. Mm. And when you were there, what did you find yourself doing? We did – I did a whole lot of different things. I had – I I worked on a remote community doing business development. So before that I was working doing, you know – real sort of fancy business stuff in Melbourne. So I was trying to sort of take some of those skills up to um, the communities that we were working with in northeast Arnhem Land. Um, we, my husband, is a um, he was a medical doctor at the time, so he was working in the hospital just doing this incredible work with um, managing the healthcare amongst all these remote communities. So there's a hospital in Nulamboy where we live, but that delivers... Um, healthcare to all these remote communities so it's a very complicated operation and it really like delivering high quality healthcare in that environment is very very challenging Um, we were foster parents as well for a while while we were living up in the northern territory and that's something that we're sort of hoping to do when our lives um quiet down a little bit (laughs) again um and i had my own radio show as well oh wow (laughs) i'll say this context of uh, podcasting oh, very and one yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was called top end talk <laughs> cool news and current affairs because nolanboy is very remote so mm. they don't get radio from anywhere else they just have one community radio station and so i was doing yeah local news local stories and current affairs i was listening to a lot of um this american life and right. yeah, yeah i love radio so yes. much so i was like okay i'm gonna try my hand at this cool <laughs> so yeah good fun i remember Ooh. i spent a small amount of time in Manangrida, which is oh, yeah, slightly yeah, very, west of yeah, Nolanboy, yeah. and was really amazed. I mean, it is a completely different way of life up there, mm. I think very much just because of the 
geography and isolation yeah. of it. Um, and I remember the ba- the barge would come in mm. once a fortnight. So you had to order your food or your alcohol or your personal products or whatever from Darwin mm-hmm. and then it would come around on the barge once every two weeks. So you yeah. really had to be prepared. Yeah. There was no popping down to the shop if you'd forgotten the spinach for dinner. <laughs> or, and it really makes you realise just those small things about everyday life um, that we take for granted in a big city. Yeah. Separate from all of the other things up there that make it a very unique yep, place to absolutely. be. Those those daily things are quite remarkable. Yeah, well. exactly. And I think, you know, the way that the Aboriginal communities in northeast Arnhem Land live, I mean, you arrive and you just think, I just can't believe that this is our country. The you same know, country, and, yeah. Yeah, that's why mm. I think it's, it mm. is really important that people go there and not just for a day but mm. to try to really just see, you know, this is our country here and like a lot of the Aboriginal people up there, English is their, you know, sixth or seventh language and a lot of the kids can only speak a few words of English um, because, you know, on the community that's not the language that they speak. So, yeah, it's amazing to be in your own country and to be in the supermarket listening to people speak and you can't understand what they're saying because they're speaking in a traditional language. Like there shouldn't be anything really that's that surprising about that, but it is actually shocking to be there and, you know. And then all of the... the complexities that adds to the education system and how what language you educate people in and perhaps that's some of the reason why there can be some school disengagement because not everything is delivered in first or second language Mm -hmm. often English is pushed Mm -hmm. at the schools which is isolating and and makes people disengage Um, there's a whole host of things that I think you don't realize unless you go there and see for yourself yeah yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, any anthropologist will tell you the language is the core of, of your culture. And so you can't just think that you can, that English is equivalent in any way to the to the language that these um, communities have been raised in. So, yeah, there are some really um, amazing bilingual schools up in northeast Arnhem Land, but you're probably aware it's a very controversial debate in the Northern Territory because there's this very you know, legitimate concern about literacy for young Aboriginal children. What I think is probably not well understood is that for some of those communities, um, trusting institutions, especially with their children, it doesn't come very naturally because Mm -hmm. we know what happened the last time some of those parents trusted their kids in an institution. You know, they never saw the children again for some of them. So Mm -hmm. it's no small thing to start to rebuild the notion that um, we are trying to do the right thing for these kids and give them really good opportunities. So these bilingual schools, I think there's um, one in Yukala that is just amazing, really mm. so beautiful, and it's got a real sense of trust with the community and I think, you know, that's sort of a little bit of a something that can be built on. One of the things I definitely learned when I was living in the Northern Territory is that we tend to, I mean, public policy, we love to generalise and we love to treat populations the same And one of the things I really learned was that you can't speak about Indigenous Australia that way. There's all these different nations and even communities that are 50 kilometres apart might have experienced a very different history of how their land's been treated, um, you know, the sort of education and care that they've gotten, you know, up in in northeast Arnhem Land, you know, you've got a missionary community right next to a community that's had really not that much contact with, um, with white Australia. And you can't just think that you can have one government policy that's going to fix all these problems for all these different communities. It really needs to come from deep down inside of those communities about how they want to tackle some of the issues that they face. In 2007, so before you went to up to the Territory, you 
interned at the New York Stock Exchange. So I'm really interested in your in how that fits with your labor strong labor identity that you had from an early age. What's it like to step inside the, what really could be described as perhaps the fortress of modern <laughs> capitalism? It really is. The stock exchange is this sort of emblem of private enterprise and yeah. free market economics. So how did you, when you were working there, how did you reconcile what you were seeing there with your experience of the ALP and your upbringing with labor politics, um, you know, and your understanding of social democracy, organized labor, mm. redistributive, redistributive economics? What was that like for you? Mm. It was really like an immersion experience almost for me. I hadn't worked in the private sector before. So as you point out, to go from only having worked in the public sector to really stepping into the centre of American capitalism was very odd. And, you know, the New York Stock Exchange is literally on Wall Street. It's the beginning of Wall Street, big American flag on the outside. Big bull. Exactly. (laughs) You go into the trading floor and it's literally like in the movies, people yelling at each other, you know, stress, sweat, streaming down people's faces, a lot of anxiety and emotion and all that sort of stuff. So it was the most incredible experience. And I have always um, felt that um, we need more people in the Labor Party who understand some of what goes on in these sort of institutions. And I know some people feel at odds with that, but I just really strongly believe that that's something as a party we need to, to work on and, in fact, in politics generally. So I think, you know, going into the New York Stock Exchange was really partly about me trying to understand financial markets better. And, you know, I was living in New York reading um, the Wall Street Journal cover to cover every day, obsessively reading about, you know, financial markets at every opportunity to just try to get as much as I could out of this experience. Um while I was working at the New York Stock Exchange, I got to close the trading day, you know, bang the gavel. The, I mean, it was honestly oh, wow. <laughs> one of the best experiences of my life. I just thought, how the hell did I get here? Did you get a photo? Yeah. <laughs> Good. Of course. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like a few a few reflections. I mean, one of the things that I really took away from that experience was the way that everything in the economy is connected to everything else. It's like pick up sticks, you know what I mean? So when I was working there, I, I had a desk behind these two old fellows who sat watching the trading day every day. They just literally sat in front of these huge computer screens that showed them how the markets were changing from second to second. And they would let me sit with them um, every couple of days to just just talk about what's happening, why is that change, why is that happening. And you would just see instantly the flow-on effects that everything has. You know, there's a, a report about an uptick in a particular disease in a country instantly, you know, the pharma companies that produce that drug um, get an increase in their stock price. Every industry that's connected to those industries sees an increase. Other industries that, you know, are related to the workforce in the initial country take a a dip. You know what I mean? Everything is, this is an ecosystem. Um, So I think that was, that was a part of it. Um, one of the things I, I definitely saw at the New York Stock Exchange and indeed in all my work in the private sector is the notion that when you put a profit motive into the mix, suddenly everything improves and is perfect and, you know, people work harder and smarter is just complete crap, if I can just put it <laughs> politely. <laughs> it's just not true. Um, yeah. I, I have seen, you know, the best and the worst of people's Um, work environments and it's got nothing to do with public or private it's really about you know the fundamentals of what why people are doing what they're doing and um, who's helping them 
you know, understand why it matters. Um, so I guess the other thing that was quite interesting about that time was it was just at the turning point of the global financial crisis. So I wanted to ask you about how could had you left by the by the time the GFC or the worst of yeah, it hit? Yeah. So so I was I was in between my two years studying at the Kennedy School and I worked um, so I was on the working on the New York Stock Exchange in my summer. And then I had another nine months or so at the Kennedy School. And then I went and worked for Wayne Swan when he was treasurer. And that's when we had kind of Armageddon on the financial markets. So I really felt like I watched the whole global financial crisis from this amazing perspective of seeing these like very early weaknesses in financial markets that started to become apparent when I was working on the stock exchange. And then to see, you know, the incredible consequences that that had for us back in Australia you know, thinking about interconnectedness, who could have realised that those cowboys who I would see at the bar on a Friday night in Wall Street were going to lead to a crisis that threatened hundreds of thousands of jobs in Australia a year later. So it was, you know, amazing to have such a perspective. You were Shadow Financial Services Minister during the second half Mm. of the Banking Royal Commission, um, which really revealed, speaking of cowboys... Mm and bad behaviour in the financial services industry, that Royal Commission really did reveal some very appalling behaviour from what should otherwise be trusted institutions in our country. Mm. Were there any stories from that time from any of the people who were personally affected and gave evidence that have stayed with you? Mm. Yeah, um, the stories stories really do stay with you. Um, We... We made a big point when I started out in the portfolio of speaking to people who'd been affected by misconduct in banking and financial services. And some of the things that we heard just shocked me to my core, genuinely, that these things could happen and that no justice would come. You know, there was no no, no reckoning ever occurred for these people. Um we ran um, forums around the country talking to victims of bank misconduct and something that I'll never forget is at every single one of these events, a you know burly man in his 50s or 60s would literally cry in mm-hmm. front of me talking about what had happened to their family and, you know, that sense of responsibility that they felt to look after the financial interests of their family and to often have their... Um, everything they'd worked for destroyed through no fault of their own. Like a a lot of people who I talked to outside of this said, oh, well, people just borrowed too much. You know, they just made mistakes. It wasn't that. Sometimes the law was broken. No one was ever held to account. And people would try to go and get a um, legal representation and solicitors would literally laugh at them and say, you think I'm going to take on the Commonwealth Bank? Are you Mm -hmm. kidding me? Mm -hmm. So um, something that really resonated um, from those discussions was People kept saying to me, I didn't think this could happen in Australia. Like their whole sense of justice actually was just shaken by the fact that people seemed to be wantonly doing the wrong thing, in in many cases breaking the law, and no one ever was held to account. And I'm very worried now, of course, you know, one of the things that I was so looking forward to about Labor potentially winning the election was that we could actually make a difference here. There were really big reforms that we were proposing that actually would have made the system fairer and of course there's no chance that the Liberals will do anything 
that um, anything like what's required to actually shake things up. And you see that now, you know, the banks, um, the reserve banks cutting interest rates and the banks, you know, hold on to hold yeah. on to it. I mean, at a moment where the economy more than ever needs that injection. Mm. So it's just going to be more of the same, I think, for financial services until we get another Labor government. And so post-election, you've been made the Shadow Minister for Innovation, Technology and the Future of Work. Mm. They say that dystopia is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> is the future looking like something out of Brave New World? <laughs> or Black Mirror, you know, is it, oh, is it all drone-delivered pizza and, or, and automated vehicles and, and, and us rating our interactions with one another through an app? Like what are you seeing in your new portfolio? You've obviously seen a lot through the portfolios you've had held previously. Mm. What's this one like? Because it, to me, is an area that fascinates me. Yeah, yeah, it, it, is, it is so... It's huge, really. And it's very exciting for me because I think for politicians of my age, the big social justice issue that we're going to be dealing with is the impact of changing technology and how that affects work, you know, pretty fundamental for, for everyone. Um, I guess the first thing to say is um, technology develops only because humans adapt and change it and and so it's important to know you know whether we whether we end up in brave new world or black mirror that's up to us and is it is it the um uh the jeff goldblum thing like jurassic park you know we spend <laughs> so long wondering if we could we never stop to work out if we should are we at that point now i feel like we are with yeah. technology we're doing all this stuff because we can but should we be doing it yeah 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 i uh, look i think there is a there is a little bit of that i think we are probably at a little bit of a turning point in the policy conversation about how we deal with these things um technology being what it is policymakers are always going to be a little bit behind development and I think now is the time for us to step back and really ask, is the landscape looking how we want it to look here? And the conversation about AI is taking that turn. So there's a big thriving discussion about ethics in artificial mm. intelligence at the moment. You would hear, you know, really good debates about why artificial intelligence seem to be perpetuating biases that we see in humans, of course. We know they're only as good as the data that we give them. So some of the things that humans don't do so well, machines do even worse, it turns out. Um, so I think there's a there's a good discussion about that. One of the things I do worry about is um, whether conservatives are fundamentally equipped to, to drive this discussion. And I think these types of big technological enhancements, this is actually a time where government needs to be active and... Um, and forward thinking and, and really setting out the framework and the boundaries for how this is going to work. I think it's important from an ethical point of view, but also from a commercial point of view, because more and more as the world um, progresses, it's one country competing against another, not one firm competing against another. You know what I mean? So we really want, we really want to make sure that Australia has got all the benefits that it should have going into this kind of global race and I'm not sure that the Liberals are going to get us anywhere near that. They don't, I mean, a lot of them don't even know how to turn on a computer, let's be frank. Um, so I'm not sure that they're the ones that are going to kind of unlock this box for us. I, I don't want to ask about a robot tax, but I kind of do. Um, no, I'm, I'm curious about whether we're reaching a point of technological advancement where the pace of it is such and that um, job loss caused by takeover of automation or robotization is outpacing the number of jobs that, that those yep. things create. So, you know, it's interesting to think about in a historical context, and I know it kind of gets brought up a lot, mm -hmm. that um, 
for example, the motor vehicle put the horse and cart industry out of business, yeah. right? But out of that was um, a whole a whole host of factories that built vehicles cropped up as well as the motel industry. And when the invention of the washing machine came about, suddenly women had a lot more leisure time, yeah. which brought up other pursuits or, or industries that could cater to that. Those, I feel like we're probably at a point where technology is growing at such a rapid pace and, and developing at such a rapid pace and knocking off jobs in the process, are we able to keep up or do we need to start looking at something like a universal basic mm-hmm. income or a big shake-up of our social safety net mm-hmm. to cater for not just job losses but a reduction in hours and uh, and the economic flow-on that that has? Mm. Yeah, what a big question. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go on a 20-minute monologue, so uh, okay. let me see how I can address it. Um, so I think firstly – a robot's going to put us all out of work. Um, I don't – I mean, we don't know for sure, but I think history would suggest that's probably not going to happen. Perhaps we are on the road instead to fully automated luxury communism. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's also not happening. I think oh. if you look at the whole history of commentary about technology, there's been a steady drumbeat for 200 years that technology is going to lead to massive job losses – um, that we're all going to have all this leisure time or people are going to be destitute and poor and it never materialises. Actually, at least in the Australian context, we continue to get more and more prosperous and technology in general improves our lives. So on the technology point, you know, there's robots um, there's robots stealing our jobs and AI being <laughs> horrible and not giving anyone, you know, from a non-majority background jobs on the internet totally get that but think about as well like in my electorate i've got monash health and monash university um something like um personalized medicine which is where they can if you've got a brain tumor they can cut a piece of the tumor out of your brain they can um try 500 different types of treatment on those cells and work out for your specific tumor what is going to be the best option for you and then give you that treatment I mean, that is only available to us because of technology. So, and you you mentioned washing machines. You know, women like us, Claire, three generations ago, we would have done washing and ironing for days of the week. And thank God we don't live in that universe anymore. (laughs) Exactly. So so there's a lot of good things here that will come from it. And I think that's really important for us to have a good balanced conversation about how as policymakers we should be making sure we get the best out of technology and making sure we don't end up in some sort of horrible technological Armageddon. Um, and indeed, you know, looking at the employment side of things, one of the patterns that you see when new technologies are invented is that there are often um, job losses that result at the beginning and then um, there's a lag and then lots of new jobs are created by that industry. Um, I just want to, you know, say we shouldn't talk about these things flippantly because for anyone to lose their jobs and to go through those transitions, it's gut-wrenching and it's not a matter for philosophising, but that is the kind of overall pattern that you see through technological transformation. I think the big thing for us to think about in the Labor Party is um, the impact of technology on the economy as a whole. It is taking the rewards of the economy and depositing them amongst a smaller number of highly skilled people and so there's great opportunities if you if you are a computer nerd and you're 15 years old congratulations you are you are doing <laughs> you are made up yeah <laughs> but if you're someone who's not a real academic person whose school is you know not the right fit for 
like those are the young people that we really need to be thinking about. How are we going to make sure that we have a labour market where young people who are not really highly skilled are going to be able to have rich, fulfilling jobs that they deserve, decent jobs that they can count on to feed their families? And of course, also for us as Labor people, we want to make sure that as many Australians get the opportunity to share in those benefits and be a creator and a designer and doing one of these amazing new jobs as we can. So is our education system actually equipping us to do that at the moment? And I think there's some issues there that we need to think about over the next few years. There was an article in Vice a few weeks ago that highlighted a study that had been done um, that showed really... because. I think it's a very valid point that the way our society is constructed means that we as people um, need to be productive and that manifests itself in work. So Mm -hmm. really there is the dignity of work Mm -hmm. as much as it may be a capitalist construct in some regard. I think that we live in a society where that's very true. Mm -hmm. Um, This this study that came out um, highlighted that basically as long as you can maintain the same income as working a 38 or 40 hour week, you only really need to do about eight hours of work a week in order to feel fulfilled mm-hmm. and to feel like you're a contributing member of society. Are mm-hmm. we in, in any way advancing towards a reduced working week? Because we ha- have all of these productivity enhancing mm-hmm. mechanisms, technology, and we're also working usually more than 40 hours. Mm-hmm. So what's what's up (laughs) (laughs) it reminds me of um there was this this futurist herman khan wrote this book in the 70s called the year 2000 and he predicted in that book that basically technology was going to lead to this excess of leisure time and there was hyper anxiety about what what we'll do if we had so much time so much stuff i could tell you so many things that i would do but with hyper leisure time no one is living that life today that i come across so um yeah Again, I think the idea that um, technology is going to lead to more productivity and we're all going to choose more leisure time just isn't – it's just there's no historical example really of that. I think productivity is going to lead to improved quality of life and that's something that as Labor people we should be absolutely delighted by. The question, of course, for us is how is it going to be shared? And I think think most Labor people would agree that we want to share that through – fair returns in the labour market. So creating a better welfare state is is good, but there is dignity in work and we strive to give people that dignity as many as we can in jobs that are decent and worthwhile. And so I think for us it's about thinking about how we're going to make sure that technology creates good, decent employment for people and how we're going to make sure that Australians are ready and have the skills they need to take those great opportunities as they emerge. This is a topic I could really talk about for a very long time I think it's very interesting we may have to get you back on and do a full <laughs> podcast just on this issue for listeners who want to continue on we are having Jim Stanford from the Centre oh, of Future Work right. yeah. on the show in the in the coming weeks so we will continue that discussion there um, but we are out of time and I just want to thank you so much for coming on to Pot on the Hill today before we wrap up we have a lightning round that we do with each of our oh, guests oh gosh okay lightning round um, <clears> so <throat> these are a handful of questions that you really better get prepared for because um, you're going to have to be on your toes here. (laughs) We're going to start off. What's your favourite day of the week? Friday. Why is that? Actually, that's contravenes lightning round rules. I'm not supposed to. (laughs) Okay. But you can tell me. I mean, it's probably obvious, right? It's so nice with with the children and, you know, everyone's happy and we all get home at a reasonable time and just get to like 
bask in the weekend that is to come. Eat pizza and watch a movie <laughs> exactly, and sleep in the next exactly. day. Yeah, so good. Exactly. I don't get to sleep in, but yeah. Okay. Everything else. Yep. <laughs> Sorry to rub that in. <laughs> um, super power, invisibility or super strength? Oh, gosh. Um, super strength, I think. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't like the idea of being invisible so much. Yeah. And even if it means you can slip into rooms that you're not meant to be in and listening on conversations yeah, that you're... I don't think I want that. I, I think if I could <laughs> pick one, sorry, just to be annoying and just uh, choose something that's not on your list to fly. Okay, I would yeah. Love to be it would be amazing. Fly. Yeah. I love the dreams where you fly. <laughs> yep. Fantastic. Uh American politics or British politics? Oh, at the moment, British politics, American politics is... Not into the I Democratic primaries? I mean, they're both primaries. so depressing at the moment. Yeah, the Democratic prim- primaries I'm, I'm observing, Kamala Harris, I mean, come on, so exciting. <laughs> but, um, yeah, British politics, I'm, I'm just fascinated by what's happening with the Labor Party, Brexit, um, just, you know... What if, a if anyone's feeling depressed about what happened at our last federal election here in Australia, just... Read The Guardian UK for a few days and you're going to feel better about the world. Everything becomes rosy. <laughs> What's the most iconic landmark in your electorate? Um, Monash University, the Menzies building. <laughs> I like it. And what's the best carbohydrate, rice, bread or pasta? Um, bread. Bread. Interesting. I'd go for pasta, but there you go. <laughs> Thank you again for coming on now, Claire. We do ask all of our guests to choose a song and tell us about why they've chosen it Mm. to lead us out. So Mm. what song have you picked? I have picked um, Beds Are Burning, Midnight Oil. Has anyone picked that before? Great question. I'd have to go back through the... Hopefully I'm not just descending into cliche here. But I, I I really feel we need to let some emotion go from the election i just feel so you know i just need some some hard rock <laughs> so there's that and also just peter garrett dancing i was and, gonna say um, can you yeah i think you know these midnight oil songs are so emotional and heartfelt and about things that just matter so much so for labor people that's what we need to be listening to right now i reckon claire o'neill thank you very much thanks claire River broke the bloodwood and the desert oak, holding wrecks and boiling diesels, steaming 45 degrees. The tide.